This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. A lot of us relied on testing product um, you know, in the right tank before packaging or, um, and or testing finished goods uh, immediately after packaging and using that as, as our sort of documentation. And that will no longer really hold any water in the eyes of the FDA. This week on the show, the father of the gluten-removed beer category joins us to discuss recently updated federal regulations that may affect your gluten-free or gluten-reduced claims. That's the first part of today's show. After the break, stay tuned to hear the story of how the first commercial gluten-removed barley brew came to life. Uh, my name is Joe Casey. I've been in the brewing industry for uh, 25 years. Uh, all of that time was worked at um, Woodman Brothers Brewing in Portland, Oregon, which eventually merged and formed into Craft Brew Alliance. Um, and I recently departed there in December of 2020. There have been some recent regulatory changes that affect brewers of gluten-free products, which is a category more and more brewers find themselves in. Hard seltzer and FMBs represented more than 20 million barrels in 2020. So for some perspective, that category is now about equal to, if not slightly larger than all of craft beer. I know you aren't a lawyer or a regulatory expert, but given your background launching Omission, a story that we'll get into here in a bit, this is uh, the sort of thing that you understand better than the average brewer. So catch us up. Yeah, so seltzer has definitely taken off, um, and you know cider as well. And both of those products fit into the gluten-free uh, labeling labeling category. And you know the the other piece that's out there is the the beers that are uh, labeled with a crafted to remove gluten or a crafted to reduce gluten. So um, you know, so uh, in in malted beverages, the the labels are dictated by TTB. 
are managed by TTB. And there is an understanding between TTB and the FDA um, with regards to food safety issues that, that the TTB will rely on the food safety to help them navigate those. So that that's kind of the background. There's a, a memo of understanding between the two organizations. And so the TTB is really relying on the FDA to manage uh, gluten gluten claims of any sort um, for, of course, for the FDA products, but as, as well as the TTB products also. Um, it's been kind of a long road. Uh, FDA started looking at uh, uh, the definition of gluten-free um, almost 15 years ago. It was in 2007. And they did a little bit of work at the time, and they they came up with a a number twenty ppm, and but they but they never really finalized um, exactly what that was going to be or how they were going to define that. So it was kind of left in limbo and then put on the back burner for quite some number of years. Um, it wasn't until two thousand eleven where that issue was revisited, and then um, there was a, a tentative ruling put in place a couple years later. And then the more final ruling came out uh, mid-late last year uh, that governs how all of those different gluten claims, gluten content claims are going to be managed. How exactly does the FDA define gluten-free? So uh, the FDA defines gluten-free. First off, they, they, they quantify it. So it has to be uh, less than 20 ppm of intact gluten. And that intact gluten is a, is a key phrase there. Um, but in terms of what they, how, how somebody gets there, um, in, in terms and qualifies for the label of gluten free, so they have a couple different, uh, a handful of different stipulations. So number one, um, you cannot have an ingredient that is a gluten containing grain. So that right away rules out um, a malted barley based beer um, that is somehow processed or treated to remove gluten, uh, carrying a gluten free claim. They they rule that out immediately. Uh, you cannot have an ingredient from a gluten-containing grain that is that has not been processed to remove gluten. So, an example of this is wheat starch. Um, wheat starch is is obviously it comes from wheat, and there is um, there's a recognized process to separate the starch product from the from the protein content of the of the wheat, and that wheat starch um, can be considered gluten-free. So, um, so that's that's something you can use, provided that it's been processed to remove the gluten. Um, you cannot use an ingredient that comes from a gluten-containing grain that has been processed or treated to remove the gluten if the use of that ingredient puts you over the 20 ppm limit. Inherently, something can't contain gluten, and um, they do have a provision in there for any unavoidable uh, presence of gluten. Um, keeps it, You need to keep that less than, less than 20 ppm. So that would be a situation if there's a cross-contact, cross-contamination. At the moment, the FDA doesn't want to be in the business of measuring anything other than intact gluten. T tell us more about that. Yeah, so um, one of the one of the concerns that the FDA had, and, and the TTB shared this as well, and um, when we're measuring gluten in um, malted barley-based beer, for example, we're we're measuring the pieces of gluten, um, the the fragments of gluten that's been broken down. Um, as a lot of you probably know, in in malting and in in brewing. There is a fair bit of proteolysis that occurs, and, and that breaks down, um, starts to break that down. Intact gluten breaks it down into smaller pieces and peptides. And the regulation, though, it's set around intact gluten. So um, their concern is that by measuring the pieces of gluten, they don't feel comfortable that the sum of the pieces adds back up to the whole. That's kind of a simple way of putting it. Um, so... It kind of makes sense. You would think that um, if you take an item and you break it into pieces and then you measure all those pieces, 
I mean, if you think about it from a conservation of mass standpoint, then um, you know that that should should work out. But their concern is that the pieces of gluten could have a different uh, biological activity than the intact gluten does. And because they don't know that for sure, nobody does at this point. Um, they they make the regulation around intact gluten, where they have a better understanding of whether or not that's uh, biologically um, you know, toxic for certain types of people or not. Cool. Makes sense. Do you know if there's anybody sort of working on that to, to get to the bottom of that or no? You know, there's, there's ongoing work to try to identify the particular sequences that, um, that and the, the, those sequences are called epitopes. And um, there is, you know, the, the epitopes are peptide sequences within the protein. And even if the protein is intact, if it has those epitopes in there, then you can have, um, for people that have uh, uh, issues with gluten toxicity, you know, they will react to those. Um, and, the, you know, it has been established that when you get into um, peptides or very small pieces of proteins, um, if you don't have a certain number of them, then the, the, then the item is just too small to cause a reaction, even if it, there is an epitope present. So if you have, say, eight maybe nine amino acids in a row, um, that's right on the borderline of being too small to cause a reaction, even if one of those um, sequences in there is an epitope. So there, that has been established. As far as, um, you know, there, there is, like I said, there is ongoing research to look for, um, to identify the other, other uh, toxic sequences. Um, I don't know... You know, that's not, um, I'm not a researcher in that regard. So they have found a lot of them. Uh, have they found all of them? I don't know. They don't know. Um, so it's a matter of time, I guess, before um, people get more comfortable about having uh, determined with, with finality that we have the list of those toxic peptides identified. So what's changed recently? So the change, the change recently was that um, when the when the FDA made their interim ruling, uh, they they carved out uh, fermented beverages and hydrolyzed uh, uh, beverages as well as fermented foods, um, any any kind of product that had hydrolyzed gluten in it. So, beer, of course, because of the malted barley, um, but other products, uh, you know, soy sauce, yogurt, cheese. Um, distilled spirits, you know, all sorts of different things, pickles, you know, all those different kind of foods, food types that fit into that um, hydrolyzed gluten category or fermented food category, they were carved out and set aside. So the, the FDA made the ruling of 20 ppm for the other foodstuffs that they managed, and that was, that was set in stone. And the change recently is that uh, the FDA did finally um, make a final ruling on how they wanted to manage those fermented and hydrolyzed f uh, food and beverage products. So the changes that the, the TTB instituted, um, you know, they, they adopted the, the FDA policy. Um, but they, the FDA policy, it, did, it didn't specifically rule out the fact that the TTB can manage gluten claims as it sees fit, uh, provided it doesn't run afoul of the FDA rule. So, um, you know, the FDA acknowledges that the TTB um, the products that the TTB manages are the TTB jurisdiction, and they they essentially give them cover in the by using the language that they did in the ruling. They give them cover to manage that as they see fit, as long as it doesn't run afoul of the rule. So the TTB um, opted to maintain uh, essentially maintain what they were doing, which was to allow for the the 
the claims of crafted to remove gluten or treated to remove gluten, for those types of label claims to um, persist. However, they did tighten up the ruling around some of those things. So, for example, um, since since the TTB allowed those claims going back to uh, 2012, 2011, um, since they allowed those, there was uh, when anytime you made a claim of of that content that crafted or that that statement crafted to remove or crafted to reduce gluten, there was a mandated disclaimer that had to be in proximity to that statement on the packaging, and the you know different there were different ways to kind of try to you know everybody is familiar with the the amount of landscape you have on a beer label and it's it's a finite space and so when you have to put more stuff on there um, with regards to disclaimers and things it, it starts to get a little bit tricky from a spatial standpoint so um, different supplier different producers sort of managed the placement of that claim um, differently than others and but the but, and they weren't always immediately adjacent so the the FDA, or sorry, the TTB then at this point, um, when they made the ruling late last year, they did kind of crack the hammer down on that one and uh, mandated that it has to be immediately adjacent. And there's some rulings um, about text size and things of that nature as well. So you can't bury something in the fine print. Makes sense. There's also some uh, claims or some some uh, parts of the ruling on the TTB, TTB side that you cannot refer to celiac disease. Uh, or that your product contains X amount of PPM because the you know the FDA has ruled that you can't quantify it, so the TTB doesn't allow you to say it contains a specific amount. Okay, so when do brewers need to be in compliance with these new regulations? So the FDA ruling uh, went into effect in August of 2020, and they put an enforcement period of one year on that. So by August of uh, 2021, so later this year, um, they will begin enforcement action on that. And um, so the people have uh, you know some time to get their labels in order and their process in order if they need to change that. Um, the TTB, um, you know, they've already started working on um, their their um, enforcement actions. Um, so. You know, in the case of um, my previous employer, there we we received notice that our our colas had been sus- uh, temporarily suspended, in, sort of, and uh, we had to rework some of our labels, um, you know, sort of spatially to make sure that we were in compliance with their new um, adjacency claims and font claims and things of that nature. One of the biggest impacts is a change to the timing of the measurement of gluten. Talk about that. Right. So um, the FDA uh, goes to great lengths in their ruling to point out that they they don't believe that there's any uh, current uh, methodology or technology that is capable of quantifying um, the gluten content of, of uh, fermented or hydrolyzed food. So because because of that, they um, they mandate that if you're going to make a, a type of product, a fermented product, for example, um, and you want to make a gluten-free claim on that product, um, you have to certify or provide proof somehow uh, prior to fermentation that that product meets the gluten-free definition as as set forth by the by the FDA. So that that changes things a bit. I think for for a lot of us that were producing either products that were crafted to remove gluten or products that were gluten-free, say cider for example, or seltzers for hard seltzers for example, um, a lot of us relied on testing product. Um, you know, in the right tank before packaging or um, and or testing finished goods uh, immediately after packaging and using that as, as our sort of documentation. And that will no longer really hold any water in the eyes of the FDA. So um, 
in the case of, say, a, a hard cider, for example, uh, you would have to test your apple juice or you test or provide some, some kind of proof that your apple juice is gluten-free prior to fermentation. And then any ingredients and other things that were in that product would also need to have that same level of certification, all of that prior to uh, the commence of fermentation. They rely, once fermentation um, begins, they rely on the supplier and their controls, good manufacturing process, processes and all of those things to, um, to maintain the integrity of that product uh, from, that, from that point on. But from a certification uh, regulatory standpoint, they, you have to provide that proof prior to fermentation. And you've got a great example related to cross-contamination that I think is a good challenge to this change in the timing of measurement. Let's hear about that. Yeah, so uh, one of the things um, that the FDA also uh, uh, points out as something uh, supporting evidence for um, your claim is uh, visiting your suppliers and uh, recording you know, that you've done audits of their facility, you've investigated whether or not they have uh, contamination risks at, at in their facility that could trickle into yours uh, when you receive their product. And I think that's really important. I mean, a lot of a lot of brewers do that with their suppliers anyways, regardless of gluten. You know, we go and we inspect our malt houses, our, our hop suppliers, our juice suppliers, all of those things, our packaging suppliers. Um, and just as an anecdote of something to be aware of is, is an experience I had uh, where we had some product in the Omission brand that was stored, uh, empty packaging, was stored in a warehouse offsite, a uh, third-party warehouse, and we visited there for some other reasons, but did did go over and look at our packaging for the Omission brand. And across the aisle from our product were pallets, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 pallets of uh, bags of gluten. So, uh, you know, it was right there next to it. And so, you know, you just never know exactly what's going to be happening um, in those types of facilities. And so you really need to be aware, you know, do as much homework on the front end about what types of products they will have in that warehouse and then set up any kind of stipulations that you can regarding the placement of those products in proximity to yours and then follow up on that and check it out periodically because those, um, it was, it was quite surprising to see that. And, um, yeah, so it happens. So isn't that kind of crazy though, that they want, they want to prove it up front? I mean, wouldn't it be so much better to do it in finished goods where you can say, look, there's we're absolutely sure there's been no cross-contamination. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, and I, I think at the end of the day, they would probably agree as well if they had more comfort. In, and I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, obviously, but I think that they would rather um, have um, testing of the finished good as it as it presents itself to the consumer uh, rather than something that, what, that was tested in the early part of the process, went through some sort of process, and then was packaged and... Um, you know, especially if that process contains some sort of um, inherent risks of cross-contamination with, you know, beer, for example, um, in, into a cider or beer into a seltzer. Um, so, yeah, I think that they would prefer to have um, measurement of the final goods, but they just don't feel comfortable that the technology is there at this point. Um, other, you know, we're not really talking about other countries, um, but other countries do approach that differently. And there, um, other countries have, have approached the standpoint, as, as you just point out, that it's it's uh they look at the content of the finished goods and not so much what went into the process to start so even though the fda doesn't uh put any stock really in the um well the fda and accordingly the ttb doesn't put stock in the gluten content of finished goods um 
you know, you could make the case that that you don't need to measure there anymore. And from a regulatory standpoint, that that is true. Um, however, I think it's important to consider the consumer aspect of this, and um, you know whether um, you know sometimes the the store you can tell about a product um, is as important as as the product itself. And um, so when when you can say that, yeah, we we test before fermentation and after. Um, the consumer might not understand all the all the regulatory intricacies, intricacies and things involved in those two statements, kind of behind the curtain. But I think that it's important for consumers to to feel good about the product they're drinking, and if they're drinking something that has some sort of gluten flame, gluten claim, whether it's gluten free or crafted to remove or reduce gluten, I think if you can provide them um, some things that make them feel good about that purchase, that's gonna that's gonna help your brand in the long run. Okay. Distillers have it easier than brewers. What's gluten free look like uh, in spirits? Yeah, so they do, um, and that's there's always been a controversy around whether or not uh, spirits contain gluten. And the FDA has taken the approach that uh, uh, gluten and proteins in general just do not carry over done properly in a distillation process. Those proteins do not any protein doesn't carry over into the distillate. So um, from their standpoint. As long as you can prove that there is no protein in the finished goods, no protein of any kind, then you can carry that gluten-free claim. Um, even if the product was made uh, with a gluten-containing grain uh, for malted barley, for example, if you're making um, bourbon or scotch or you know any, anything like that. Um, so, and that's that's a much easier. The, the reason they're doing that is because the the analytical methods for the simple detection of protein, you know, go, no go. Um, those are very well established um, and they're very, very um, cheap and they're very um, accurate. So their assumption is that if you do a test of that nature on your distillate and you find protein, then they're going to consider that that protein is gluten, whether it is or not. Um, and the, so that product would have some issues from a, from a compliance standpoint. But um, as long as you can show that your, your final product doesn't contain protein of any sort, then um, then you would be compliant. Um, in the case where you were adding something to your spirit, um, uh, you know, downstream, then you would just have to document that that product that you added to the spirit um, was met all the gluten-free requirements. And an okay. example of that, I wasn't, um, you know, I was talking to a, a colleague, and and um, in in his neck of the woods, uh, they they will make salmon-flavored vodka, and so um, you know, there's a they make vodka, and that of course uh, they can check for protein, but then they add protein via salmon, um, but they can they can show that that protein is not uh, it, that it meets the gluten-free requirements because it comes from a fish and not some you know not a gluten-containing grain. Have you tried any of the salmon-flavored vodka yet? I have not. Uh, I've made my own kind of uh, concoctions with uh, little smokies and things of that nature, but uh, no, I haven't uh, tried the salmon vodka yet. Coming up. When my wife was diagnosed as well, it suddenly became sort of a, you know, it was a realization that, you know, there's a professional and a, and a personal interest there uh, to try to come up with something that both our CEO could drink and like to drink as well as my wife. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, 
And that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, a global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. February 23rd is part one of a three-part webinar series on the topic of brewing CO2 and the current shortage affecting the industry. The first 25 registrations are discounted, so act fast. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has a scholarship kickoff and seltzer panel February 25th. Districts Milwaukee and St. Louis both meet March 18th. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st, and the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers. United we brew. Now back to the show. In regards to yeast and enzymes, it seems like they've done what government is really good at doing, making things more complicated and less straightforward. What's going on there? Yeah, so um, with yeast and enzymes, one, you know, one of the challenges is that um, I, I guess it's we're going to need some guidance from the from the FDA at some point because this issue will will percolate up. Um, I think that it's going to come down to whether or not um, those 
those uh, yeast and things like enzymes are considered process aids um, or if they're considered ingredients. Um, if you think of um, how they're handled now, um, yeast is, is usually called out as an ingredient, but an enzyme is not. So there's, there's a discrepancy there on how those two different things are handled. If you read the FDA ruling, they go to, they go to great length to, to talk about enzymes specifically. And, um, you know, when the FDA makes a ruling, there's a comment period where, um, you know, users and manufacturers and consumers can, can uh, present comments to the FDA trying to, you know, sway them to rule this way or that way or to take a certain thing into consideration. And, uh, there was a, there was some questions put in there by somebody, uh, you know, um, indicating that their their um, supposition was that the enzymes should not be um, subject to this rule and to the gluten free rule, and that the FDA took exception to that. And they and if you read the re, you know read the comment section of the of the rule, and it's 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 a pretty good um, there's a pretty good set of things there to give you an idea of what they're what they're thinking about. But they call out that no enzymes are specifically not exempt from the ruling, and they call that out because a lot of enzymes are manufactured in the presence of gluten containing grains. Um, they're, you know, they're, uh, manufactured on a uh, barley syrup or some sort of malt syrup or, um, you know, wheat, wheat syrups or things of that nature as, as a growth medium for these enzymes, um, or, or the bugs that are producing the enzymes. Um, so they, they do go to length to call out that enzymes are not exempt. So that, that then creates a potential challenge for, um, for the producer, you know, cider producer or seltzer producer, um, you have to then go back and, and talk to your suppliers. Do you use any enzymes? And you know, if chances are in a hard cider, uh, yeah, I, your apple supplier is probably, um, you know, if you're getting bulk juice or or concentrates, even uh, there's a good chance your supplier is using pectinase. And so then you have to take a look at you know, go to the enzyme supplier and get it get an understanding of whether or not that enzyme is produced in the presence of any gluten containing grains. And um, in the work that I did, which was not extensive, but it was and it was specific to the uh, vendors that I was working with, um, I was surprised at the number of enzymes that that did have um, gluten containing products in their manufacturing process. I'd never really thought about it before. It makes sense after the fact, but um, but yeah, some of the enzymes that that I was dealing with. Um, would not have fit the definition of gluten-free as as put forth by the FDA. Wow, so, that's pretty interesting. What about yeast? That's kind of kind of a similar issue for yeast, though, right? Yeah, it's essentially going to be grown up with with gluten. Right, that's exactly the same thing. It's so, you know, how is the yeast grown up? Is it is it grown up on um, sorghum, for example, or molasses? Um, those those products are gluten-free, so um, that that would uh, allow your yeast, you know, to make to make the claim that your yeast is gluten-free. Um, but most, you know, most yeast is not bred up that way, um, and um, is is in contact with uh, gluten-containing grains. Um, certainly, at the supplier, when you're bringing in, you know, liters or slants or or whatnot, um, and just uh, I think dried yeast would fit into that category as well. Um, but I can't speak about all dried yeast. But yeah, there's 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 gluten there, and then even once you bring it into the plant, you're typically propagating it with brewer's wort, um, which of course contains gluten. So there's that's that's the risk there on the yeast side. What are the options for measuring gluten currently? So there's a couple different options for measuring gluten. Um, you know, if you have a if you have a super laboratory and an unlimited budget, you know, you can do some mass spec work, and that will give you uh, some pretty great um, insights into your product. Um, it doesn't really help you from a regulatory standpoint, though, uh, not yet, at least. Um, so, you know, the 
the brewing industry for the last 10, 10-ish years um, generally has been relying on an ELISA method. Um, and that um, is, you know, that the, the FDA doesn't, doesn't support that method. So um, in terms of checking for gluten content prior to uh, fermentation, uh, because the gluten is intact, uh, you need to use a different type of test. You can use an ELISA. However, it needs to be a sandwich ELISA um, as opposed to a competitive ELISA. They, those two types of ELISAs go after different uh, sort of types and sizes of molecules. Um, the ELISA tests are uh, more expensive, um, you know, $75, $85 a pop. Um, not to mention, you know, if you have, if you want to set yourself up in your own laboratory to run ELISAs, you're looking at about five grand or so um, to get set up. Um, an alternative to that is, um, especially if it's something that you, that you believe is very low risk of containing gluten, uh, like say apple juice coming from an apple juice supplier or um, sugar coming from a, from a sugar supplier um, that just doesn't, doesn't have any gluten in their process. Um, then you can look at something that is, uh, they're, they're called LFDs. It's a lateral flow device. And it's, a, it's really sort of a go, no-go type of reaction. It doesn't quantify um, any, any gluten content, but it, it gives you a signal whether you're above or below the quantification limit or, of that or the detection limit of that, of that particular device. And a common, a common type of um, lateral flow device is, is a pregnancy test. You know, it's, um, you, you, uh, when you use that, it, it gives you a, a, a red line or a blue line or whatever, and it tells you, yes, you're pregnant or no, you aren't, but it doesn't tell you this is kind of a bad example. It doesn't tell you how pregnant you are. Because <laughs> you either are or you aren't. But, but, That's right. Yeah. No, so makes sense. The, the benefit of these tests is they, they're actually a little bit more sensitive than, um, than some of the ELISAs. So that yeah. gives you some extra protection there. Uh, they're also quick. Uh, you know, you're looking at five minutes versus a couple hours for an ELISA. And they're much, much cheaper. Um, you know, you can, you can get them 10, 15 bucks a test. Um, Maybe less, and uh, so they're they're much more economic, and and because they are a, sort of a, a rapid test, um, there's not a lot of um, laboratory expertise required to run those tests, and so it's something that um, you know the your your people out on the floor could use um, with with the, just a very moderate amount of training uh, to keep 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 tabs on your production process. So it's not often we get to hear from someone who invented a beer style, but here we are talking with Joe Casey, father of the gluten-removed category of beer. Joe, take us back 10 or so years ago. How did this all come about? Yeah, it was a wild ride. Um, you know, so my interest in, in uh, I'm going to call it gluten-free for now, uh, my interest in gluten-free um, started um, all the way back in like 2005. Um when my wife was diagnosed with celiac disease, and that of course had a had a big big impact on our lives, um, given that you know my immersion in the beer culture, and um, so you know suddenly she couldn't couldn't partake in the products that I that I peddled in. Um, so there was there was a, definitely a personal interest there to try to come up with something that uh, that she liked to drink um, and that and that tasted good. There there weren't very many options from a from a beer standpoint in terms of gluten gluten-free products back then. Um, and a lot of them, the ones that were available didn't really deliver on the expectation of what, what most people think uh, traditional beer should taste like. So you're being um, nice, but they all tasted like crap. Well, they tasted, you know, <laughs> uh, that, that's one way to put it. However, you know, I, I want to 
I want to point out that you know in certain parts of the world, um, beer is made with sorghum, for example, as as the routine. That's their base material all the time, and so their beer tastes like that, and that's what they come to enjoy, and that's what they expect. So, you know, to to them, you know, if they were to be given a you know IPA or a or some other beer that or a pale ale or an amber or whatever uh, domestic lager, if they're given a beer that is not made with sorghum, uh, they might think it tastes funny and that it doesn't taste good. So. You know, I think a lot of it is is it's just around, you know, a particular cultures or, or or a person's expectation of what beer is supposed to taste like. So yeah, yeah, sorghum beer didn't didn't meet the definition. I don't think of anybody uh, anybody here in the very in the United States of what tr- beer should taste like. But in other parts of the world, that's the normal. So um, yeah. So where did you start? So you 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 know obviously you set out to um, to produce a, a beer that didn't have gluten, but that also um, wasn't was not made with these ingredients that didn't have fit the right flavor profile. So so what next? Yeah. So um, so that was really so as I mentioned, you know, I, I became interest uh, interested when my wife was diagnosed. Uh, a handful of years prior to that, our company CEO had also been diagnosed with celiac disease, and I I didn't really. Um, you know, that didn't really click for me at the time. Um, but then, you know, when my wife was diagnosed as well, it suddenly became sort of a, you know, it was a realization that, you know, there's a professional and a, and a personal interest there uh, to try to come up with something that both our CEO could drink and like to drink as well as my wife that she could drink and like to drink as well. Um, so, Again, there weren't a lot of options back then, so we started where a lot of other people did. We started with sorghum um, and tried some different things and um, made beer that tasted okay, uh, but just never really. Um, you know, sorghum has a very particular flavor, um, and, and it, I think I saw that you also you brewed one that was sorghum and cassava as well, right? Yeah, we did. So we had initially had brewed, um, and it was pretty much 100% sorghum, and that sorghum flavor is very, very distinct and and um, and very different than the beer flavor that we were looking for. So we started trying to essentially dilute that out um, with other, other materials that were gluten-free. And, um, you know, cassava is one, uh, rice would have been another, corn would have been another, you know, there aren't any number of other, other gluten-free grains we can, or adjunct type grains, honey. Um, and we did some work with honey as well. So, um, you know, but how was the, how was the cassava flavor? What was that like? You know, it didn't really have a lot of flavor. It was, it was pretty much just a a starch medium. Um, yeah, there wasn't, wasn't a lot there. So, but so that's what we did. Um, brewed some beers didn't really, didn't really take our all fancy. So we just kind of parked it, um, and didn't really touch the project for a while. Um, Though there, shortly thereafter, I, I became aware of um, it was starting to be talked about in, in hushes and murmurs in different brewing science circles about um, an enzyme called Brewer's Clarex, manufactured by DSM, that um, some people were starting to talk about had the ability to render a beer gluten free. Um, and so I started looking into that and, and talking to those folks and kept in touch with them for a while. And, you know, we stayed in touch. We didn't really, uh, no firm movement on it or anything until we got into about, uh, 2010. Um, and at that point, um, you know, there'd been some developments in testing as well. So, um, it started to see, I started to see that as something that had more legs. And so I took the, took the concept to, um, our CEO and my, my VP and, uh, there was interest, but there was just too many other irons in the fire. So we parked it for a year, came back in 2011 
and uh, we decided we we're going to go for it. And so, you know, all of 2011 was developed or was devoted to um, trying to trying to break the system, so to speak. You know, trying to produce a beer with Clarex that contained gluten, uh, measurable gluten. Um, and um, you know, so we fine tuned our process, uh, worked on our on our safety. You know. Um, product safety, food safety um, protocols, uh, testing protocols, all of those things. And, um, you know, put that all together and then rolled out um, commercially with Omission in uh, early 2012. So I guess, you know, it's, it's no secret how Omission beer is made. In fact, the brand has been intentionally transparent about it, which has probably contributed to its success. You can read about it on the, the website if you go to drinkomission.com. But you know, you've kind of just described that, hey, there's this enzyme um, that breaks down gluten, but is there any more to the process than that? Or is it as simple as letting the enzyme work on a, essentially a normal barley brew? Yeah, it is. It is quite simple. I think, um, you know, I, I described it as the the easy part was, was making the beer, um, you know, crafted to remove gluten um, in the fermenter, for example. Uh, the harder part was to kind of guarantee that and and maintain that that status uh, through the throughout the rest of your process through shared piping and shared filter systems and all of those things. So that was really, you know, um, because the enzyme and in, in, in the omission application was added um, during fermentation or, or while the fermenter was being filled. You know, we didn't have to worry about any any concerns in the brew house per se because um, you know it was just it was upstream of treatment. Um, so really for us, all of the work began, uh, once the fermenter was filled, um, and then, you know, downstream all the way to packaging. So, you know, like I said, it was, it was easy to make. It was harder to, to continue that process through to the end into the finished goods. What was it like to, um, I assume you must've had to work with TTB and FDA, you know, up front to, cause you, I assume this was the, probably the first time that the crafted to remove type of language was used what was that process like it was very interesting um we did we did engage the ttb early on in the process um in fact before i mean we were well into development and on our way to market when we engaged with them and we had what we internally referred to as the ttb summit and we had um a handful of the top ttb people come out um um, one of their uh, like second in charge of the organization, um, the head of their analytical and the second in charge of their analytical groups, um, as well as the, the TTB council. Um, they came out and we presented our case. Um, on our side, we had, we had brought in some of our own experts uh, from our biofarm, for example, and um, other, other um, ex- gluten experts uh, from around the world and, and talked about you know, why, why we thought this worked and what we wanted to do and presented that to them. And they, they registered their concerns and that was that. Um, and then you know, we went to market shortly thereafter. Um, initially, uh, the product was launched in the state of Oregon only, and there was some strategy to that because at that point, because it was manufactured in Oregon and stayed in Oregon, the you don't need federal approval. Yeah, the feds didn't have any jurisdiction over the product, so uh, we we had previously worked with the state of Oregon um, and reached understanding with them that what we were doing um, it satisfied their requirements for uh, labeling something gluten free. So in the early days, omission was Oregon only and labeled gluten free. Uh, the regulatory uh, picture caught up to that uh, shortly thereafter, um, and um, also, you know, the brand was expanding, and so we started producing a non-Oregon version of emission products, and um, and those, of course, could not 
could not use the gluten-free terminology. So that's when we developed the Crafted to Remove Gluten. And we ran with both products for a while and then eventually just merged everything into um, the Crafted to Remove Gluten terminology. And so one, one label for each product, regardless of which state it was going to be distributed in. That's cool. Uh, so at, at any point there, w- w- were you kind of on pins and needles worried that the TTB would somehow shut it down? Yeah, there was a lot of concern. Um, there was a lot of concern with that. Um, and so it was something, you know, we, Omission was growing um, very quickly. Um, and so, you know, when you have a brand that's taken off, you want to support that. But at the same time, we all knew that there was some regulatory risk there. And so um, it was, you know, there was, you know, it was something we kept an eye on and, and that we actively tried to, um, you know, we didn't take a passive role in that. So we met with the TTB many times, many, many times with regards to um, just the, the technology and the testing of gluten-free as well as uh, labeling and uh, regulatory concerns about label call-outs and, and whatnot. Yeah, I can't imagine you have any choice there because um, it's got to be so much easier for them to just say no unless you're kind of managing that process. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, you know, they definitely had the upper hand. There were times where I think that we had some legal standing on particular different things, but it's a matter of um, how much money do we want to put into that particular argument, you know, and as, you know, there's a phrase, you know, is, is that the hill you want to die on today? And no, that's, you know, we're going to save our ammo. We're going to keep it dry for these other things. Um, so, you know, when we got into those contentious situations, you know, we didn't, we didn't pursue those aggressively. Um, you know, then at some point though, you know, the, the TTB made it very clear that they were not going to be the ones that ruled on, uh, gluten content, um, and labeling, you know, food safety issues in, in, in the beers. So that at that point we started to engage directly with the FDA and that was, that was a great process. And, you know, if you've ever, if you ever get the chance to do anything where you go to Washington DC and you meet with your regulators, or even if you go to your state capital, meet with your 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 state officials and uh, just see how that government process works. It's really kind of crazy. Um, it's not crazy in a bad way. It's just really interesting. And um, so I got to see that up front, you know, uh, several times where we'd meet with our um, our senators, for example, from various different states where we had um, breweries located, and to try to get their support um, and and you know so that they could push and prod um, behind the scenes um, with the FDA. And fortunately for us, uh, Ron Wyden, uh, senator from Oregon, was um, the um, he had budgetary oversight of the FDA. And so we were able to uh, use that relationship to um, not to change anything, but just to get meetings. And that's, you know, sometimes it's hard just to get FaceTime. Um, and so we were very thankful for, for having the, the, you know, our, our, our legislators on our side to, to help us facilitate those meetings so we could have some open dialogue and hear what their concerns were and we could share with them ours. So I think you mentioned earlier that FDA has specifically not defined terms like gluten removed. So how exactly do crafted to remove or reduce gluten products fit into all this? Yeah, so that was one of the conversations we had with the FDA. Um, and, um, you know, they they basically came out right and said that their their charter from Congress was to define gluten-free. And that was it. Um, there was no no other language in there about whether or not they needed to define low gluten, um, medium gluten, you know, crafted to remove gluten. There was that was not part of their um, directive. And there was, you know, we one of the avenues we talked about was, was whether or not we could try to change that. Um, we did a little bit of work to see if that was viable, and it 
kind of wasn't. Um, but they were very clear that they were specifically out to label um, something or to define gluten-free versus not gluten-free. Um, so that that was expected from them, and and you know in the ruling they do they do call out that they they give the TTB latitude to to um, manage those terms as the TTB sees fit, um, provided of course that it doesn't run afoul of the of the FDA ruling. So um, yeah, cool. So most important question. Um is your wife happy? Is she able to to enjoy omission? Yeah, uh, my wife loves omission. It's a, it's a regular in our fridge now, and um, you know the nice the nice thing about it is it it has you know the traditional beer taste that um, that I'm used to um, from all the other beers that I drink, and so um, you know it's it's a product that that works for both of us. Um, I'm you know shame, shameless plug here, but I'm I'm particularly fond of the omission ultimate light. It's a low-carb, low-calorie, uh, moderately low-alcohol product that has a ton of flavor. And, you know, um, that, that phrase is out there that even millennials get fat. And so, uh, you know, <laughs> drinking, drinking some low-carb. And actually, I'm not a millennial, but, uh, you know, having some, uh, some product that is uh, lower-carb and lower-calorie and lower-alcohol, is uh, it's just fine with me. That was Joe Casey here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Joe started as a cellarman at Widmer in 1995, climbed the ranks, and his 25-year tenure at the brewery only just recently came to a close. Joe was one of our industry's best Gen Xers, and I know he'll make a great addition to someone's team. Just hope he stays in the industry. By the way, if you want more details on the updated regulations, check the show notes for a link to Joe's District Northwest presentation. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stand and get-